All right, if you have your Bible, you can turn to James 5. If you have your app, you can open up uh, the menu, sermon notes. It's all right there. And uh, let's get this uh, party started here. All right, I have not been a basketball fan, generally speaking. Um, A couple years ago, Rancho's basketball team started doing pretty well. And that's when I got to, um, that's when I got to really be more interested in, in basketball. Um, now, it's March Madness, and so a lot of us are interested in the, uh, the men's side of the sport. Not too many people are interested in the girls' side. I'll just, I know that sounds terrible. That sounds terrible. But uh, the girls' side of college basketball is just a bunch of layups. And that's, anyway, I'm just not a big fan of that. <laughs> what? Until Friday. Friday was absolutely epic. Friday was epic. Now, I didn't watch the game because who would? But I saw, the, I, I saw what was coming in my phone and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way. So I ran inside the house and caught the details of this game. UConn was upset by Mississippi State. Nobody saw that coming. In fact, if you know anything about basketball, uh, UConn was the favorite by 21 and a half points. That's, that, that's eternity. That, that's, that's infinity in, in basketball. There was 99% odds of UConn winning. For those of you who are uh, chronic gamblers, two things. Number one, celebrate recovery Thursday night. <laughs> Number two, the money line was 7,000. Now, I know enough about gambling to know that's a lot. In other words, if you wanted to win $100 by betting on UConn, you would have to lay down $7,000 to win 100. That's how much of an upset this was supposed to be. In overtime, a final shot. Uh, 66 to 64, Mississippi State wins. I love that story. In fact, every sporting event I watch, if there's an underdog, I want that underdog team to win. I don't care if they're playing against a team I'm a big fan of. I want the underdog to win every single time. James is a book written for the underdog. James is a book written for the underdog. James is a book written for those who are in tough situations, born in poverty, a tough family life. They're dealing with some physical ailment, a disease, or something they were born with. He's writing to those who are persecuted for their faith. He's writing to people who are dealing with financial problems, health problems, relationship problems. He's writing to people who have ruined their own lives by their own mistakes. He's writing to people who are the underdog, and he wants them to thrive. He wants them to be strong. He wants them to endure, and so he writes the letter of James. He writes the letter of James to bring comfort and strength to people who struggle to the underdogs. I met an underdog on Friday, had lunch with uh, a gentleman, a homeless man here in town, young man, 19 years old, African-American man who was raised in the inner city by a single mother. Single mom tried to do everything she could to provide for him. He suffered with intense learning debilities, and clearly just in conversation with him, he suffers with some form of mental illness. Uh, As he was growing up, he couldn't do school, dropped out of school very, very young, actually dropped out in middle school. Um, he uh, was medicating himself with drug addiction. So he's the, just your classic dually diagnosed young man, mental illness and drug addiction. And that dual diagnosis is a fast track to hopelessness and, and homelessness. He finds himself here in Temecula, and he is just wanting to survive every day. That's the vision for his life, is just everyday survival. He doesn't think about tomorrow. He doesn't think about any dreams for his life. In his mind, he is forever destined to this life of wandering the streets and homelessness. Here's a person who is uniquely destined for struggle. And we have all kinds of complex questions as to why, but the reality is he's uniquely destined to struggle. James is written for this kid. 
And so I have to believe based on James and based on the gospel of Jesus Christ that this kid does have a hope in the future. We work with homeless people all the time here through our community mission of hope. And sometimes it's hard to think, how can we work with this person to get to a place of thriving? It's difficult and it's riddled with failure after failure. But we've got to believe by the book of James and others that there could be hope for this kid. Now, the rest of us may not struggle with with lifelong issues like this young man, but we will have waves of struggle. All of us will. It's unavoidable. We live in a broken world, and sometimes that brokenness just pours on us from the outside, and sometimes we are the perpetrators of brokenness as we make mistakes, we commit sins, we fail. We fail ourselves, we fail others, and we cause brokenness. So one or the other or both, brokenness comes to us or we are the perpetrators of brokenness. But the reality is this world is broken and we will suffer. I had somebody, a pastor friend of mine actually, uh, he heard me say this a couple of years ago when I said something similar and he actually confronted me. And he said, what do you mean we're destined to suffer? That's not very positive. And he's one of those positive thinking guys. You know, you, you pray the right thing, you say the right thing, you speak positive words and then God will be somehow obligated to make your life better. Uh, I don't know where that comes from, but it does not come from what I read in God's word, right? With respect. God's word makes it very clear that we will have trouble. In fact, Jesus says this in John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Pretty much wrap it up right there. We will have trouble. It's going to happen. It's a broken world. So the victory isn't to to live a trouble-free life. The victory is the taking heart. Jesus calls us to take heart, and James calls us to take heart. It's not whether or not we'll struggle. It's how we struggle. And that's what James is talking about, how we struggle. Jesus promises struggle. In fact, when I have uh, sometimes a very friendly uh, debate with somebody who just believes that, well, God would never want us to struggle... Um, if we just say the right religious thing, God will alleviate suffering. I say, okay, uh, who do we follow? And yes, it's a trick question. Who do we follow? We follow Jesus. Did he live a struggle-free life? I mean, what's the symbol of the Christian faith? It's the cross. The symbol of the Christian faith is a torture chamber. So it is impossible for us to think that, well, somehow if we follow God and do the right religious things that he's going to free us from suffering. Jesus was a perfect man praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, take this cup of suffering, wrestling with God in anguish, and God said no to his perfect son, you will go through this struggle for a greater joy ahead. And so when we approach God's word, it's not how do I live a life free of struggle, it's God, would you allow me the pleasure of struggling or suffering well, surrounded by your grace and surrounded by a community of grace. And that's what James calls us to. James 5.10 says this, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered under suffering. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. A couple things about this segment. First of all, he doesn't say Suffering is a blessing. He says, blessed are those who persevere under suffering. So we're never going to call suffering good. We're never going to call suffering blessed. Nobody should be praying for more suffering. You need help. Safe Harbor Counseling is for you. Uh, No. Suffering is suffering. It's bad. But God does something in the midst of that suffering to create a power and a strength in community together. And so he uses Job as an example. And Job is an example of God's mercy and God's compassion. 
So as Job was struggling, and keep in mind, if you know the story, Job lost everything. He lost all of his finances, all of his uh, possessions. He lost his health. He lost his reputation and lost his family. It's a story of somebody who's lost it all. And as Job is struggling, he's crying out to God. So he wasn't this, you know, rock pillar of a person, immovable and emotionless. He struggled and he cried out to God and he doubted God. He doubted whether God knew what he was even doing. Yet Job is an example of persevering well. Because even through his struggles, his emotional struggles, his physical struggles, his overwhelming grief, he struggled but then trusted. He struggled and then trusted. And God never left him. God was always there right by his side. So persevering means that we walk through the struggle, trusting that a good God will surround us with good people who will see us through and that will emerge stronger than ever. That's the goal here. That's the goal of James. Not being free from struggle, but when we struggle, to be surrounded by grace and emerge stronger than ever. So how do we persevere? James says two things. First, strength in time of need comes from a God of grace. Strength comes from a God of grace. Just think a direct line from God to us, and it's a gracious line poured down upon us. James said in James 5 that God is full of mercy and compassion. Uses Job as an example of that. He also uses farming as an example. Later in the chapter, James says that suffering and enduring through suffering is like farming. For those of you who were at the farm yesterday, you were doing a lot of work. And you're digging and digging and you're laying down plastic and planting seeds. And, and when you got there, there was a bunch of dirt. And when you left, there was a bunch of dirt. And for those of you who go to the farm this Saturday, you're going to come. There's going to be a bunch of dirt. When you're going to leave, there's going to be a bunch of dirt. And then there's teams that will come every Saturday, right? And for about a month, you'll see nothing but dirt. Lots of toil, lots of sweat, lots of dirt places you didn't think dirt can go. And you'll see nothing. You'll see nothing. But at some point, there will emerge a harvest. And later we'll see that James says, you might not even see the harvest this side of eternity. Persevering isn't being free from suffering. Persevering doesn't mean everything about our suffering makes sense. But persevering does mean that God will be with you. He will be with you through it all. And his grace will be there. His compassion will be there. His mercy will be there. And and he tells us through his word and he tells us in community with each other, listen, you're going to make it. You're going to be stronger. And something wonderful will emerge. We don't know what that is. We may never see it this side of eternity. But God is bringing a harvest forward through our struggles. So first James says our strength comes directly from a God of grace. As he ministered to Job and ministered to Jesus, he will minister to us and never leave us. Secondly, and this is where James spends the rest of the book, strength comes from a community of grace. Strength in time of need doesn't just come from God, it comes from a community of grace. I'm going to say something you can uh, fight with me about later, send me an email, but I don't think God's grace is enough during times of suffering. Now, I know the Christian thing to do and to say and to sing is that God's grace is enough, but sometimes it's not. Oftentimes, it's not. God designed us to be strong through one another. And it's very clear. Listen, God's invisible. We believe he exists, and there's ample evidence that he exists, but he's invisible. So God gives us his spirit. And as God gives us his spirit, we can then comfort one another by his presence, but through flesh and bone. We're human beings, and human beings need other human beings around us. If we're suffering intensely and, oh, Jesus is all and God is all and God's grace is sufficient for me, I'm telling you, you're going to die in the vine. 
I'm all for God's grace. It's what we're all about. But God's grace also needs to be felt and experienced in relationship with one another. And so I have the Spirit of God. If I come alongside somebody who's suffering and I'm bringing comfort to somebody who's suffering, it is the Spirit of God in me giving comfort to somebody in the form of a real human being. When I suffer, if other people filled with God's Spirit come to me and bring comfort to my side, I am being comforted by the very presence of God through other human beings. So yeah, there's God's grace, but there's also one another. We need one another. So James talks about this in James chapter 5. I'll read a good chunk of it, and then we'll put in a couple of buckets here. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So here we have James. He's listing a bunch of people in need, and he's listing a bunch of ways to help them. So let's, let's put this in two buckets. Here's the bucket of need, and you can just tell me or your neighbor which bucket you're in here. First of all, there's a buffer, the bucket of suffering. Suffering. Whenever James talks about somebody who's suffering, he's typically talking about someone who is poor. And in the time of Christ and James, his brother, you were born into poverty and you died in poverty. You were born a peasant, you died a peasant. You're born to a carpenter's family, you die in a carpenter's family. I mean, this is these, these class systems which most cultures, cultures have. And so these are the people that James was familiar with. Now, James was a person of privilege, not by birth, but by position. He was the leader of the church. So the Jerusalem church, immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus, James was large and in charge. But he made himself poor in order to identify with those who are poor and suffering. So James is for them. James is also right into the persecuted. During the time of Christ, it was illegal to be a Christian in Jerusalem in the Jewish areas and illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. And so the Christians were persecuted out of Jerusalem, where it was illegal, into the Roman Empire, where it was illegal to follow Christ. So they're an intensely persecuted church. We don't know, don't know anything about persecution here in America. If a politician says something mean about Christians, we flip out. I mean, get a grip. If a, if a movie star says something mean about Christians, we flip out. Get a grip. That's not persecution. That's, that's a conversation that might be a little mean. Big deal. So we don't know persecution, but they certainly did uh, 2,000 years ago. James talks about those who are in trouble. He says, are you in trouble? And that word means a troubled spirit, a troubled soul. So if anybody is lonely, sad or depressed, anxious, fearful, or worry, James says, comfort is coming to you. Suffering, persecuted, trouble, sick. James says, is any of you sick? This is an ailment of the body. And for some of you, it's pretty clear maybe you were born with um, uh, an issue that you have to deal with your entire life, a uh, genetic issue. Uh, maybe some of you uh, were injured. Some of you may have received a medical diagnosis. Some of you deal with uh, chronic fatigue or chronic pain. James is written to bring comfort to you. I have a, a friend of mine. I spent some time in Denver with him a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were having lunch, just normal lunch. He's the picture of health, and he starts talking about his life, and He's talking more than usual. Then all of a sudden, he breaks down in tears. He's breaking down. And this guy is the image of strength. 
He has worked out every day of his life. He came out of the womb with a set of dumbbells going for it. I mean, this guy is the picture of health. And he's weeping over lunch in a public restaurant because of his health problems. He's maybe 58 years old. That's a good guess. All of his joints are failing. His knees are shot. They both need to be replaced. Both of his shoulders are shot. They both need to be replaced. Every joint in his body is experiencing chronic pain. He needs a spinal fusion. But a spinal fusion at 58 is just this, this, just this horrible program of, 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 of uh, vertebrae that are, are fused but bring stress to, stress to other vertebrae, and then they have problems. And he's, he's trying to avoid that as much as he can, and he's weeping in front of me. And then he recounts a story of where he lost it in rage in his own house, and they had guests over. So he was at his home with his kids and his wife, and guests were over, and he lost it in rage and cursing and crying out to God. I mean, screaming at the top of his lungs, and he's kind of breaking down, confessing that. I did something wrong, and I just, dude, you did nothing wrong. Stop trying to be this strong, tough dude. You know, I think breaking down in front of his family, in front of his friends, is probably the best thing he could have done to be a human being who's struggling intensely, but instead he's putting all this guilt upon himself. I gotta be tough for my church. I gotta be tough for my family. I have to be a tough follower of Christ and have it all together and be faithful all the time. You know, he's also carrying the guilt. He said, I know other people struggle more than I do, so why am I so, you know, self-absorbed? I mean, he's piling guilt upon himself and, and you just need to be sick, bro. You just need to be sick and feel sick and, and you need to get other people around you who are gonna care for you. When we try to do it all, of our, all ourselves, we're boxing out the care of God that comes through one another. And I think his journey is one of just being honest and vulnerable and just hurt and hurt out loud and hurt in community. Then James says, you know, have you messed up your own life? Are you caught in sin? And I love what he does here because he equates the suffering of sin with the suffering of circumstance. And I think that's so gracious. Sometimes the church is not that gracious. If somebody is suffering because of a circumstance that's come upon them, sometimes we could be pretty gracious. Oh, yeah, you know, hey, let's care for you. But if somebody messes up their own lives by doing something terrible and hurting themselves and hurting others, we don't tend to be that gracious. Oh, that's the consequence of your own sin. We'll care for somebody over here who's, re- who's received a terrible problem, but we will not care for people who have been the problem. And James equates it all. Is anyone caught in sin? They're struggling. Let's provide the same kind of care to them. So which category are you? Probably not persecuted unless you just got here from Iraq or Syria. Are you suffering poverty, financial problems, troubled in spirit? Is your heart broken, lonely, depressed, anxious, worrying? Is your body breaking down? Have you done something terrible and you're bearing the guilt of that decision that you've made? Which is yours? Some of you are saying, I got like three or four of them bad boys. All right. You're in the right spot. You're in the right spot. James is now going to bring comfort on you that comes not just from God directly, but from one another. So here's what James says. We need to be in a community of grace, not just a God of grace, but a community of grace. So James calls us to live as a community of patience, a community of patience. Typically, when somebody struggles, we're not very patient. Fair? When we are struggling, we're not very patient. We get upset. There's friction. We get short with each other. James says, everybody relax. Now, James is dealing with a unique situation. These are church leaders getting pulled out of the church, arrested, tortured, killed. This is intense persecution, so James calls for patience. It's a little bit of a different scenario, but we have our own version of our struggles. When we struggle, we can all get impatient. 
Uh, have you ever been around a sick husband, ladies? Yeah, I mean, he's whiny, he's mopey. You know, you're impatient, he's impatient. We could all get this way. In the same way, James calls us to be a community of unity, a community of unity. Sometimes when we're aggravated because of the suffering, we can start to, you know, bite at each other. James says, do not groan or complain. The actual word he uses means no murmuring groans, no murmuring groans. But when we struggle, we can murmur. When we struggle, we can get not only impatient with ourselves, but other people around us, and we can start using words that hurt. I was uh, murmuring and groaning on Friday. Um, my wife and I were, you know, running some errands. We're about ready to go on vacation. We're going to be in Utah skiing tomorrow morning, so, you know, deal with that. Um, and I, I can't wait to get out of here. It has been a month. It has been just a month of stress. I'm not whining or complaining. It's just been one of those months. You know, we, we laid a Rancho staff member to rest. We've never done that before. We have a lot we're, we're dealing with just in terms of ministry and growth and some national things going on. It's just one of those months, right? It's been a tough month. So I'm driving around with Jenny on uh, Friday, and I'm just short with her. And everything she's saying is kind of bothering me. She's saying nothing wrong. She's just being her wonderful, sweet, beautiful self. And, uh, and I'm just kind of just a little short. And she says, dude, <laughs> when she says dude, that's the word. That's, uh-oh, I get tense. I'm busted now. Dude, you're sounding like, and then she gave a name. Now, is that name, is that person in the service? <laughs> she gave a name. And that name in our family means griping, grumbler, complainer, right? Dude, you sound like, and I want to say, woman, you sound like, but what I said instead was, woman, you're right. You are too, and I didn't use woman, that's disrespectful. But I said, I said, you're right. Just immediately I caught myself, yeah, it, it's been a month, I'm sorry. And then as soon as I said it's been a month, then she settled down. She said, oh yeah, I just, I forgot. You've had a lot going on. I apologize. She apologizes. I mean, it was great. Just about a rough 12 seconds there, but, uh, but it was great. That's what a community of unity is about. We can, we can struggle. We can have, just have those moments, but really it's about grace, relational grace, community of patience, a community of unity, a community of action. This is one of the things I love about James. Right in the middle of James chapter 5, he says this seemingly random thing that very few people can get their heads around. Right in the middle of this discussion about suffering, he says, above all, don't make an oath. And, and the whole theological world, commentators, scholars, where did that come from? Well, I think I know. I'm not going to write a book because I don't want anybody to, you know, criticize it. I think he's going back to James 1 and 2 where he says, put your faith into action. So he's talking about suffering, and then he says, don't make an oath. Well, what does that mean? I, I think what we do oftentimes, and it's a phenomenon that uh, has been around for a long time, if somebody's suffering, we say something like this, hey, call me anytime you need me, I'll be there for you. Do we say that? It's like, it's like a reaction. Anything you need, I'll be there, just call me. That's an oath. Those are words. And while they may be well-intentioned, it's an oath that we may or may not follow up on proactively. Now, yeah, if they call, which they won't, we might do something, but James is calling us to proactive action. Don't do this. When somebody's suffering, don't do this. Just do something, right? Make a meal, give it to them. Mow their lawn, pull their weeds, um, you know, pay for their house to be cleaned, all the things we talked about two months ago when we got started here. Be proactive and help, a community of action. James also calls us to a community of prayer, a community of prayer. There's nothing quite like prayer to connect the whole world 
of suffering. The person who suffers knows they have a community around them that's praying for them, and those prayers are going to God. Prayer is a wonderful communal exercise. Um, we have a ton of people who pray around here. In your card, in your bulletin, and on the app, there's a place that you can put your prayer requests. Those prayer requests come in. They get distributed to hundreds of people who pray for every single one of those things. If you put private, those things go to um, uh, the group of elders, volunteer pastors and elders who pray for you. And then they post it online. Really cool. No, they don't do that. (laughs) So the public prayers are prayed for by hundreds, and there's private prayers that are prayed for in a small circle. And we love praying for this church. And we pray, you know, the way God commands us to pray is we pray for them, we pray for their comfort, we pray for their strength, and then we are always crying out to God. Our heart's desire is that this situation in their life be relieved. Now, sometimes, I would say honestly, on a rare occasion, there's something wonderfully supernatural that just seems to all work out. That's not the norm. That is not the norm. We, when we pray for people... Yeah, there may be something wonderfully divine that takes place in there, but when we pray for people, it's more about binding ourselves together in a community of prayer, binding ourselves relationally with flesh and bone and community, and then buying our flesh and bone community, binding that to God himself. Prayer is a wonderful culture-creating community of care. Then James calls us to gather the elders. Now, at Rancho here, we call our elders um, pastors, and we have three layers of pastors, no, no particular order. We have volunteer pastors, staff pastors, and governing pastors. I report to the governing pastors. They're my shepherds and caregivers, and and they hold me accountable, and I report to them. So we have our volunteer pastors, staff pastors, and uh, governing pastors. They are bearing the burdens of the church. And when somebody's struggling, we love to gather the pastors around those people who struggle. And we've got roughly, I don't know, 100 or so volunteer pastors over the years who are trained in a pretty rigorous training, and they care for people. They love people. They bear burdens. If you're part of a small group, your leader is either a facilitator or an elder, a volunteer pastor, and they're there because they care. I want us to be sure that we are open in sharing our struggles with the people who are leading us and to say, hey, I'm wrestling And I may be wrestling poorly, right? I need help. I need strength. I need people gathering around to care or to pray. James also says, let's have a community of confession. Let's have a community of confession. Let me ask you this. Does your leader here at church know your favorite sin? (laughs) Tough question. Does your leader at your church know your favorite sin? The leader of your small group, the facilitator of your small group, if you're on a serving team, the leader of your serving team, do they know your favorite sin? Well, I'm not supposed to have a favorite sin. Yeah, but you have one. Do they know what it is, right? We ought to have a community of confession where we're not trying to be this perfectly put together, religious, all tidied up, you know, group where everything's fine and I'm fine and we're fine and and find the first sinner to judge. Say, hey, listen, We all have issues. We all have problems. We're all prone to false flaws and failures, and we need a community of confession. I'm telling you right now, the group of pastors that I meet with several times a year, usually for two or three days at a time, they know my junk. A couple people do here even locally too. There's a risk about that. You're admitting that you're a human. You're admitting that you have failures. You're admitting that you have a ways to go in your faith. A community of confession is so healthy because when we confess, we can just absolutely enjoy God's forgiving grace. Now, if you're in a ministry, uh, a church that is just all about, you know, the right and the wrong and the rules and the regulations, I suggest not to confess. They'll start throwing rocks at you in their glass houses. 
But at, at Rancho and a community of grace, we can be honest and open and vulnerable. And finally, James ends with this. It's a vision of restoration, a community that restores somebody who has fallen. And this is particularly about somebody who has ruined their own lives, right? If they're caught in sin, ruin their own lives, there is restoration ahead for them. And I love this about James because he's not just casting aside people who've ruined their own lives. Hey, you got to deal with your own consequences. He's saying, no, the church is here for you as well. God's grace is here for you by the forgiveness that comes through Christ alone. And we are here together for you as a community of grace. Even if you've wrecked your own life, even if you've made the same mistake countless times. And I'm telling you, one of the things I love the most is when somebody comes to Rancho and they are just, they are believing they have no chances left. They've ruined their lives. They've ruined their families. They made the same commitment to stop doing the same thing over and over again. And they're here sort of as a last resort. Maybe they're here because we're a little larger and they want to disappear, but when we get to know them and when we get to know their failures or they go to celebrate recovery or they're open with their group leader, we're able to say, this is the place for you. God is a God of second chances, third chances, and more if you need them. God's a God of restoration. No matter how many times you failed, and some of you are carrying some serious failures, walking away from a, a, a marriage, betraying your marriage vows, leaving your kids, you've had an abortion, you've made the same commitment over and over again, you're drug addicted, and you can't seem to escape this stuff. You might be bearing a weight of guilt, wondering if you're ever going to be free from it. James says, come here. Be a part of a, of a gracious community that will walk with you through your struggles, through your guilt, towards restoration, a lifelong journey of restoration. As we've been talking about, we did lay uh, one of our teachers to rest last Saturday. And we had an open mic a time for people to share their stories and share their heart about Mrs. Story. And uh, right here in the mic to my left, in this building, three middle school students came up. They were students of Mrs. Story. And when they started walking up together, of course, there wasn't a dry eye in the building because they were going to say something just poignant about Mrs. Story, but you didn't know what they were going to say. And they each shared something wonderful. The last young lady said, you know, Mrs. Story always gave me a second chance. She said, if I'd blow it on a test, she'd give me a second chance and even a third chance if I needed it. And um, what a powerful expression of the gospel that is. Because some communities and institutions can be very rigid. You know, church can be very rigid. Here's right, here's wrong. Obey or fail and suffer the consequences. It can be very harsh. School could be like that, right? There's a test. Here's the material. It degrades the grade, and you deal with the grade and suffer the consequences if you, if you didn't make it work the first time. Well, Mrs. Story wasn't that rigid of a person. She understood the grace of God in her life, and so she came across those students. She'd meet with the students who didn't pass the first time, and she'd say, what are we going to do now? How about we learn the stuff together, and maybe we'll let you take the test again? That's not real normal. I think it's an amazing image of God's grace. Those kids' lives are transformed by the grace they received in one person's classroom. That's a picture of God's grace in community. Whether we have messed up our own lives or whether the brokenness of the world is bearing down on us from the outside, crushing us, being in a community of grace is what really matters, what really strengthens, what really heals. We're going to close with a short video of Renee and uh, George Juarez. If you don't know the name, you'll probably recognize the face. They are here every Sunday morning, all Sunday morning, making sure that everybody who comes on this campus is warmly welcomed and received, and they mobilize an army of welcome team members who want to make sure that people are touched with the love of Christ here at Rancho. 
Uh, they volunteer like you wouldn't believe. They say uh, their line is, we're saved to serve. See, she was diagnosed a couple years ago with a very aggressive and life-threatening form of cancer. And I, wanna, I want you to hear her story, their story, and how a community of grace has impacted them. Hello, my name is George Juarez, and this is my wife, Renee. Hi, everybody. Awful. I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Are you serious? I don't have time for this. I want to take care of my family. I, I need to do all the domestic stuff around here. I want to serve at church. No, thank you. I didn't sign up for this. For me, it was a cold sinking feeling at the pit of my stomach. And I, I only get that feeling when I can't fix something. They were absolutely devastated. They understood that, that it could mean a death sentence. They didn't take it well. Music, for me. Uh, it, it seemed like in this particular season on the radio, every song was specifically penned for my situation and the right song would always come on at the right moment. And one of my favorites was by Lauren Daigle. It's called Trusting You. And um, the chorus, the whole song is wonderful, but the chorus, it says, when you won't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you won't part the water, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. And that became my declaration. It became my conviction. And I was able to share that song with some other people and it was just a very powerful tool. Oh no. It wasn't possible for me to lose hope because I was never alone, because I was always surrounded by people and songs and scripture, all inspirational, all uplifting. Whether it was a text message or an email or a card in the mail, um, there was always someone or something lifting me up. because our support system, our awesome, amazing, extensive support system, all these people ministering to me, I wanted to minister to them. It gave me a purpose. It gave me something else to do besides feel sorry for myself. The doctors were focused on killing cancer, but my church was focused on loving me.